Hello, welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. Hello, base campers. I hope you all had a happy and restorative Easter. We're taking a little bit of a breather here in the Rezac household with my son on Easter break. So instead of trying to quickly patch something together, I thought I would offer a base camp classic this week and then pick up next week with a great interview with Dr. Ken Harris. Today's episode is probably my favorite episode of all time, as in if push came to shove and I had to pick just one base camp episode to leave for humanity, this would be the one. It's an episode full of myth and imagination, and I truly believe it yields new insights with each listen. Enjoy, Base Campers, and we'll see you around the fire next week. Coming off the last episode I did with Anne Baring and reading her book, I was sort of flush with mythic possibilities. I've been wanting to return to the theme of the Holy Grail. Specifically, I've been wanting to have on author Linda Sussman on the show. She is the author of a great book, my favorite book about the Grail, actually, titled Speech of the Grail. There's just one problem. I can't find Linda Sussman. I believe she lives in Portland, but I've been unable to locate her properly. So I've been wanting to do this episode about the Grail and get her great insights into it. And the other night, I woke up in the middle of the night with a flash of inspiration to write about the myth of the Grail and make an episode for you. For some reason, I have a sense of urgency about this. I will be creating this episodes with words from Linda Sussman, Joseph Campbell, Wolfram von Eschenbach, who many feel wrote the definitive version of the Grail myth with Parzival, Robert Johnson, and my own words. I hope you enjoy it. As I started to work on it, I became enchanted, as I tend to when working with mythic motifs that inspire me. But trying to capture the essence or true meaning of the Grail is absurd, as I soon found out. I should have known. A myth that has this much power and this much transformative information for our tribe would chuckle at my attempts to, quote, approach it and unpack it for my listeners, unquote. It's sort of laughable. In the end, the best I can do is share with you some of the snapshots of this great myth and hope that some of my enchantment finds your mythic imagination. I did my best to shape it into a whole listening experience, but I think it may land as a variety of mythic images and imprints offered for your contemplation and further investigation. Perhaps my purpose here is to share my love of this myth and let you run with it. What if this great legend of redemptive power is the key to restoring our wasteland? I offer this with utmost respect and humility. It seems that this is the only way to approach the great mystery and beauty that is our holy grail. Why does the myth of the grail still enchant us? What is it about it? Its instruction, its hidden meanings, its mystery. As you begin to engage with this myth, something starts to stir in you. And if myths carry information and transformative images over time and generation, then this one packs a punch, as you can tell as soon as you start to step into it. I found this a daunting task. This myth is mighty and commands my respect. I sense all the powerful beings that are connected to this story. And my best option, and the one I took, is to approach it like Parsifal, the innocent fool who becomes the hero of the story. Step into the myth in an unsophisticated way and allow it to shape this communication with you. We must remember that a myth is a living entity and exists within every person. You will get the true living form of the myth if you can see it as it spins away inside yourself. 
When working with a myth, it is good to keep in mind that the characters are representatives of all the various levels of consciousness or parts of ourselves as we seek to put ourselves back together. The boundaries between literal and psychological, inner and outer, symbolic and actual, part and whole, microcosm and macrocosm become very fluid and porous. It is impossible to play seriously with a sacred story and not have it change your life, to change your seeing, your listening, your experiencing, and your understanding. One becomes an initiate. Playing in myth and story, the initiate gradually learns a mode of mythic imagining that requires leaps. To be able to make such leaps, initiates will have to be strengthened in their courage to confront uncertainty. Evidence of this courage will be an increasing willingness to speak out of the unknown, extemporaneously, or from the divine source, and to speak more from one's questions than one's provisional answers. Linda Sussman says that the grail calls to itself those who are worthy to serve it, and worthiness for this service shines through the person speaking. This is a unique take and contribution from the myth itself. Wolfram von Eschenbach, I love that name, he suggests that each person must bring something to the myth, not just expect to take something from it. I love this, and I have found this to be true. What will you bring to the story of the Grail? Wolfram emphasizes four virtues that will qualify the initiate to be a successful hunter of the story's flying metaphors and shy strategies. Two of the virtues seem to be required at the outset. The second two will mature in both Parseval and the initiate during the unfolding of the story. The first two are perseverance and humility. Perseverance is always required when working with myth. Myth is a language and syntax that will not give you a quick fix or quick answers, and certainly not with a myth like the Grail. In myth, everything is jumbled and seems to be happening at once. You need perseverance to let the mythic images unfold in you. You need perseverance to survive your initiation. The second virtue is humility or self-honesty. It is required that you bring humility and authenticity in your quest for the grail, so you need perseverance and humility at the outset. As the quest and story unfold, these two virtues develop into two other qualities, faithfulness and forthrightness. Faithfulness as in the ability to wait and trust. I am personally experiencing this right now in the world, as are many of you in our tribe. And the final quality is forthrightness or sovereignty. Here, sovereignty is the ability to live from your highest knowing, from the part of you that knows you have a part to play in restoring the kingdom and honors and nurtures this part of yourself. A sovereign being also confers sovereignty onto others in his or her speaking. Always there is power and dignity and respect for others in this quality. This is a story about, among other things, initiation. In it, there is the answer to some of our deepest questions. We arrive at this story, let's see, we're a bit exhausted, excited, perhaps on the precipice of our next chapters, and starting to become aware of something. Our part in the grail myth is starting to come into focus. All initiations require a separation phase, being pulled gently or violently away from the familiar, from family and community, and entrenched behavioral habits and accustomed ways of thinking and feeling. Leaving the familiar environment and these modes of thinking and being introduces Parseval and the initiate to new challenging situations which force self-confrontation. Parseval and the initiate then discover and develop their own strengths and ways to contribute to the grail story as they struggle with their shortcomings and their lessons. This quest or journey will include portentous meetings 
ordeals, exuberant successes, and dismal failures. Such outer events, however, provide just the raw materials for initiation. The transformation results from what is happening within. This is the true meaning of alchemy. As all alchemists realize, transformation cannot be observed directly. It is an inner experience long before anything observable appears. A word of encouragement for the men and women who are not corporate rock stars and high achievers in the wasteland. People who achieve lasting worldly success rarely choose to undertake this inner quest, the very first stage of which involves being stripped down, made to appear a poor fool, just like Parsifal, who is a poorly dressed country bumpkin who wants to be a knight. At the crossroads, where the tempting road of glamour, acclaim, wealth, and status intersects with the road of loneliness, boredom, ordinary struggle, and ego death, the former will invariably seem the sweeter path. Until a person has experienced failure, brokenness, fear, emptiness, and alienation, the rigors of the initiatory path will not appeal. Ego death and surrender to the divine life force have always been hallmarks of initiation, Great yearning and determination are mandatory for such an initiation and are, in fact, the enduring gifts the initiate and Parsifal receive from the beginning. Every initiation has, at its core, a vision. One could accurately say that the vision is divinely given, or even that the divine feminine is asking for your hand, for your assistance in an important matter, perhaps. Once the vision has emerged, the work is to build and maintain a relationship to it, this is satisfying and fruitful work. At least it has been for me and other men who have heard the call. The vision will be at once a prod and a guide. It will live as your mission. This vision will act as a helpful familiar and a fearsome mystery. One day it will seem as close and real as one's own hand, and the next day only a distant illusion. Once one is set upon the path of initiation, the transformation begins. There is no going back to the way things were before. Any attempts at reversal portend severe consequences for the initiate and perhaps for the community as well. The first demon glaring at the initiate from the threshold of initiation will be the fear of appearing foolish. This fear is justified. One will be awkward, make mistakes, hurt others. Crossing that threshold depends on the strength to endure one's own foolishness, failure, embarrassment, and humiliation. This endurance helps to right-size the ego, grow the initiate's humility, and help him or her travel lighter. The character of Gurnamons gives Parsifal and the initiate an important hint about how they might relate to their imperfections in a new way. The sense of shame, he says, pricks sharply whenever one has said or done something that is dishonorable, something that is beneath one. He encourages Parsifal to learn to use shame as a teacher. Each initiate then develops an inner sense of what words and action befit his or her self-respect and dignity. I love this. Gurnamans is giving us a wonderful tool here. The Holy Grail. Joseph Campbell called it the founding myth of Western civilization. Campbell and countless other scholars, artists, and seekers have seen the Western wisdom path disclosed in the image of each knight, which is you and I, of course, entering a forest where no one else has made a path. The quest is to recover the elusive grail, thereby returning its sustenance to the world. But when one asks what is the grail, no definitive reply is possible. In the various versions of the story, it appears as a vessel, a cup or a chalice, a jewel or a stone. 
All of these possibilities prompt fruitful contemplation, but the overall impression remains that the physical manifestation of the grail are not as pertinent as the ability to recognize its significance to know its mission. The grail can be known only through its activity, which, depicted in the stories, is the nourishment of each person according to his or her needs and capacity. The stories clearly illustrate that one can know the grail only by becoming like it. The various medieval versions agree that the grail cannot be owned or possessed. Instead, it must be served. It calls to itself those who are worthy to serve it. The Fisher King and the Male Wound How did the Grail King and Fortis receive the wound that sits at the center of the story? Well, he is wounded in battle. A lance through the genitals, which also represents the regenerative part of his psyche. And who wounded him? A pagan. This is a very interesting detail to me. What is a pagan? One who is earth-centered, goddess, or feminine-oriented? So, here you have our Grail King impaled by a representative of the divine feminine, and the wound will fester until the myth moves its main characters along. There will be no early resolution for the Fisher King, a wound that won't heal, a blow that renders the male tribe impotent, and the world barren and void of the divine. Now, to me, there's a secret to this myth. We know that at the center of the story is the Fisher King and his wound. The healing of this wound is what the entire kingdom is waiting and praying for. But one aspect that is not often expressed is the restoration of the feminine soul. It is a glaring omission to speak of the grail and not talk about the recovery of the feminine soul. For is this not what keeps the land barren? Why also do they call the grail king and Fortes the fisher king? Well, to fish is to do one's inner work, work on dreams, meditation, active imagination, drawing, music, poetry, any form of inner work that is rich to one. To fish is to do one's inner work. Even mundane things such as gardening and getting a runner's high are fishing in this sense since they put one in contact with the inner world. Fishing is the Fisher King's only balm for his aching wound. These are clues. The bare bones of the story. And Fortes, the Grail King, has been wounded, as we've said. A wound that will not heal, and because of this wound to his generative aspect, a pall has descended over the kingdom. The kingdom is a wasteland. If the king is wounded, the whole personality will be troubled and there will be no productiveness. Since the generative part of the Fisher King is wounded, it is the generative part of the personality that is impaired. One finds himself uncreative in every realm. A modern man would complain that he has no new ideas, that he's bored, restless, stuck, and depressed. If the king is wounded, the land is barren. Now, elsewhere in the kingdom, way out in the forest, there's a boy who's being raised by his mother, whose name is Herzeloid. His father, Gamaret, was a great knight who was killed in battle, and his mother has vowed to keep her boy safe. And this works until one day when the boy, Parsifal, is out in the woods and sees a group of knights approach, and he's floored. They are otherworldly to him. He's never seen such a display of masculine dignity and power, and he's immediately enchanted. He returns to his mother and declares, to her horror, that he is off to become a knight. And so, his initiation begins. Now, the court jester has prophesied long ago that the Grail King would be healed when a wholly innocent fool arrives in the court and asks a specific question. So, the myth is telling us that it is the naive part of a man that will heal and cure his masculine wound. The myth informs us that our redemption will come from a least likely place the part of us that is humble, 
The origin of the word humble traces back to humus, and it means of the earth, feminine, unsophisticated. Now, there is in Arthur's court a damsel who has not smiled nor laughed in six years. I love Wolfram's imagery here. The legend in the court is that when the best knight in the world appears, the damsel who has not smiled for six years will burst into laughter. The instant this damsel sees Parsifal dressed in his country bumpkin rags, she bursts into laughter in joy. We have our hero. So, until the Parsifal part of a man's nature appears, there is a feminine part of him that has never smiled, that is incapable of happiness. We see this in so many men today, this inability to be free-flowing in their feeling and joy. If one can awaken the Parsifal in a man, another quality in him immediately becomes happy and joyous and light. So Parsifal arrives, which is part of the prophecy. However, the first time he is in the presence of the Grail King, he does not ask the question. Why not? Well, Parsifal was following his mother's orders. She told him not to ask questions, to try and lie low and not draw attention to himself. She was trying to keep him safe, as mothers do. But I think there's another deeper reason that Parsifal does not ask the question. He does not want to really see the suffering of the Fisher King, and therefore the suffering of the world. It is right there in front of him and all around him, and yet he can't bear the intensity. We are all, in our own ways, Parsifal here, my friends. We have courageously rode through and met countless challenges, but the first time we came face to face with the wounded king, we didn't ask the question. None of us did. Not yet, anyways. We are not to that part of the story. In short, it is not yet time to free the king and restore the kingdom, and Parsifal is not yet ready. He needs to ripen. The soul needs to marinate. He still needs to be further awakened and expanded by the next series of events and meetings. He will need to start to feel his way on his soul's journey. This is very important. So far, anyway, Parsifal seems as surprised as anyone as to his gifts and good fortune. This honeymoon phase, though, is about to be over, and he is starting to realize that what got him to this place in the story will be insufficient for what will take him all the way to his destiny. I, for one, can relate to this. So there's a seasoning that occurs in the soul of our hero, or to use Wolfram's words, Parsifal has to grow slowly wise. And after many more tests and adventures and lessons, he finally arrives the second time at the Grail Castle. This time, he marches straight to the Grail King. He is no longer enthralled to what he is supposed to say, or do, or not say. Parsifal now can read the Fisher King's suffering, and as a consequence, his own spontaneous tears flow from his eyes. In other words, he's now both able to see and bear the pain of the suffering around him. He can take it all in and act as a divine container. Additionally, the spontaneous emotions do not deflect him from his calling, nor does he just awkwardly blurt out the question. The time is right. First, he asks where the grail is kept, and facing its direction, genuflects three times and prays for God's goodness to, quote, triumph in me, unquote. Then he asks the question, the one that fulfills the prophecy, and the question is, my king, what is it that troubles you? So, the second time Parsifal finds himself at the Grail Castle, he points himself in the direction of and aligns himself with the Grail. This fills him with the speech of the Grail. And what the Grail fills him with is speech that serves all its recipients and the wider world. This is the crucial point. If the speaking is not first placed in service to the whole community, then it is not the speech of the Grail, nor will it heal the ailing king. In Wolfram's story, Parsifal is now crowned the Grail King after speaking the question. 
It is interesting to me that the question that Parseval asks is utterly unremarkable, isn't it? This points to something as well. It is not the power of the question, but the divine alchemy that has worked its magic on the initiate. Personally, I think that the question could have been any number of questions and worked just as well. The point is the deep honoring and service to the grail, to the divine feminine. Parsifal is in tune with the grail and his own soul and what they are asking of him. Can you hear and feel that? The crowning experience for the initiate is the increasingly strong contact with his or her divine presence, with his or her soul, the Holy Grail. When one's speaking is in alignment with this presence, one is spiritually sovereign, like Parsifal or Christ or any of our other great spiritual teachers. One is free to follow and obey his or her highest calling. The Speech of the Grail Speaking reveals the state of the initiate and tells you where he or she is in the story. Sovereignty, as we said, is one of the traits that is developed in the initiate as he or she moves further along the story. Linda Sussman says that sovereignty in speaking results, in part, from the initiate's willingness to resist habitual kinds of speaking. I love this. Common habitual modes of speaking include complaint, criticism, or cynicism when life seems painful, unpleasing, or difficult. Gossip and backbiting, as well as feigned politeness, are other habits of talking that undermine the initiate's self-mastery. Skillful now in leaping, speaking and disclosing truth through playful, poetic, and mythically imagined metaphors, the initiate has traversed many of the phases in the initiation. One's speech is becoming more beautiful and compelling, more playful, interesting. The intention to open a space to dispel the sorcery of ignorance, disease, despair, vengeance, or victimization. The speech that heals is the speech that frees. The initiate now invites the captives to walk out of their prisons and take a new path. For making playful connections, the Greek world knew no one could compare to Hermes, Quicksilver, messenger of the gods. Light-footed with wings at his feet, Hermes never gets weighed down defending his dignity. And one finds this light touch in the initiate and his or her speaking. A profound spaciousness and lightness of touch also grace the speech of spiritual masters. This passage reminds me of Ramana Maharshi, who sat in a cave in the Himalayas for 12 years and yet powerfully changed and uplifted our human story. And speaking of India, there is a Hindu story that contains elements of the Grail myth. It demonstrates that the wasteland and the injury to male creativity are owing to the disregard of the great feminine or disregard for soul. Restoration of land and mankind depends on restoring homage to her. Linda Sussman says that you only arrive at what you are aiming to achieve through the cultivation of two fundamental attitudes of soul. You must nurture a true love for what you represent and also an insightful love of humanity. She also emphasizes that if the speaking is not first placed in service to the whole community, then it is not the speech of the grail. In its many possible expressions, the speech of the grail transmits meaning and inspires change or movement in the story by opening up a space in another possible initiate, extending the invitation to engage in the quest. Are you following me? Divine imagination, that gift from the soul, can never be reached by knowing where one is going. One knows one is in the right place only after one has arrived. In our own time, perhaps the greatest threat comes from the destructive armies of prefabricated, electronically transmitted images commanding the soul's attention from all sides, yet leading to her starvation. Our soul is in the grip of a terrible drought. 
But don't fear. Mythology never leaves us stranded, no matter what a dark tale it may spin. A true myth will lead us out of the dilemma and offer a cure. And the Grail myth does this in splendid terms and gives us one of the greatest visions of healing and wholeness of any mythology. The Grail myth uses profound language to describe the healing of the Fisher King wound. I would like to finish with a couple of quotes, one by the great mythic writer and poet Martin Shaw, who says, quote, We are each a strange container of unique experience, a castle full of erotic chambers, dust-filled cupboards of old bones, great halls with unending feasting, small towers of arcane literature, and balconies from which heartbroken lovers hurl themselves into the moat. All is going on inside of us all the time. Poetry and myth are divining rods that dip into these waters and dredge it to consciousness, giving it form, unquote. And then another quote by Cesar Viejo, who says, quote, I believe that humans carry a slight suspicion that we may be immortal, and this makes us miserable, unquote. <laughs> that one makes me smile. I hope this episode sparks something in you, a remembering, perhaps, that we are brothers and sisters who have come here for a divine purpose, and that we are still in this mythic landscape together as God intended. Parseval has had many tests of his courage and is currently undergoing a tremendous alchemical transformation. He is learning to read the signs from his soul and to attune himself to the great mystery of the Grail. In our wasteland, Parseval is now approaching the Grail Castle a second time. He can feel the heartbeat of the feminine, both in himself and in others. He has learned to trust his inner knowing, his soul. He approaches the castle with humility, dignity, and a sense of divine alignment. He will not miss the opportunity again to ask the question and fulfill the prophecy. My friend, what is it that is really troubling you? That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac and you're listening to Basecamp for Men. <laughs>